I Will Trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Hollywell Brexit Focus Podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined as always by Paul Goslin. Paul, great to see you. Hi, Gerard. We need to say, as we do, as we have done regularly recently, this is being recorded on the morning of the 28th of March. All things might change by lunchtime, so whatever we tell you is now as accurate as of this time. Anyway, this month we're going to have a conversation, as always, about what's happening on Brexit and what might happen in the future. We're also going to hear from a number of different people. We've talked to Ivan Ferguson from the Ulster Farmers Union, Professor Siobhan O'Neill on the mental health challenges around Brexit. Uh, We also had a quick chat with Paul Stafford, who's researching the community relations impact of Brexit. And again, we have our Brexit question. Paul, still no clarity on where we're heading. Um, I think we'd hoped at this stage that we might at least know the direction of Brexit. Give us a brief reminder of what's happened over what has been a very busy month. As you say, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Theoretically, we were to leave the European Union tomorrow. That's Mm. not going to happen. So that's the good news. Um, Howard Wilson was Prime Minister back in the 1960s and 1970s, and he's probably best known now for having said, a week is a long time in politics. Sometimes an hour at the moment is a very, (laughs) very long time in politics. Now, last night, Wednesday night, we had the indicative votes. We also had, earlier in the week, uh, the announcement by Theresa May that she will be stepping down as Prime Minister. We don't have a clear date for that, but she was trying to persuade Eurosceptic Conservative Party MPs to back her deal. Logically, that deal would come back to the House of Commons tomorrow, Friday. Uh-huh. But as things stand, it is possible that it will not, on the basis that it still looks as if she will not get a majority behind it, despite having promised that she will leave as uh, Prime Minister. Now, clearly, the idea from the point of view of her backbench rebels, the European Research Group, uh, is that uh, if she goes, then someone within their group, uh, probably Boris Johnson, would stand as leader. Now, it's worth stressing, again, that the problem around the withdrawal agreement isn't necessarily specifically the withdrawal agreement itself. I mean, it is in terms of the backstop and the position of the DUP, mm-hmm. but for many people, it's what it implies for our future relationship with the European Union. But just to, uh, to focus a bit on the DUP, it looks as if the DUP will still not support the deal. Members of the European Research Group, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg in particular, has said that If they were as much as to abstain, then actually that would shift quite a lot of people within the European Research Group to support the withdrawal agreement, and on that basis it would get through. Mm. But as of last night, Nigel Dodds, who's the parliamentary leader of the DUP, the deputy leader overall, said the DUP does not abstain on issues of sovereignty and the union. So it would seem, as at this moment, that the withdrawal agreement cannot be approved. There were a number of indicative votes that you mentioned earlier on, and they took place last night. There were eight votes, and this was a bit of an attempt, I think, to wrestle power from government. Did power, was power actually taken away? Yes, power was taken away. Parliament voted uh, to have uh, these what's called indicative votes. In other words, a series of different votes indicating what things MPs would like or not like or which ones would they most dislike. Mm-hmm. And really, we didn't learn anything because everything they disliked more than they liked. So that really doesn't take us farther forward. The the two most favoured options were that the withdrawal agreement would go to a public vote before it was approved, ratified by Parliament. But that didn't get a majority, but it got more votes than Theresa May's withdrawal agreement ever has done. And the other most popular arrangement was that the UK would continue to have a customs union relationship with the European Union after leaving Brexit. But... Neither of these things achieved a majority, and it is possible it will go back to the House of Commons again on Monday. The problem with that is what Theresa May agreed with the European Union. Uh And she begged the European Union to allow us to extend Article 50, in other words, not to leave tomorrow, but to leave at a later date. Now, there are two options in terms of when we would then be leaving. So we still don't know when we're going to be leaving the European Union. It will either be April the 12th yeah. or else it will be May the 22nd. Now, it will be May the 22nd 
if the House of Commons agrees the withdrawal Withdraw, agreement. Yeah. But the deadline for that is tomorrow, and it would appear that there is no majority available to the Prime Minister tomorrow. It is possible that that might be a, a nod and a wink that that slips a bit. Right. But we are very close to the deadline when some sort of withdrawal agreement has to be, or actually the withdrawal agreement has to be approved by the House of Commons yeah. in order that we leave on May the 22nd. The alternative is no deal and we leave on April the 12th. And, and the noise is coming out of the EU is definitely no deal is looking more and more likely and that's what they're preparing for. Yeah, um, the after the time that I, mean, I have to say, I mean, I think this is important to say, the European Union leaders were very, very blunt about how unhappy they were with Theresa May's performance when she went to see them. They rejected her proposal and agreed their own proposal. Um, when she was about to go in to speak to them, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said that he thought there was a 10% chance of her getting her withdrawal agreement uh, through the House of Commons. After she spoke, he said, well, actually, he'd been over-optimistic. It was about 5%. And mm. the president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, said he thought 5% was optimistic. So right. they don't expect. I mean, in my mind, I think it, it feels a bit like if you have a relationship that's in, on bad terms and you've, you know, a personal relationship where you're thinking, Do I, am I staying in this relationship or not? And actually, the other partner goes off and thinks, well, I'm not waiting around for this, and comes back and says, you've, you've spent too, too long yeah. thinking about this, I'm walking. Yeah. And it feels a bit like that with the European Commission and the European Union now. So I think there's a very strong possibility that the European Union will say, well, actually, we're, we're fed up with waiting. We know that a hard exit, mm -hmm. a Brexit that, with a no deal, will be very bad for all of us, but actually, we can't continue to wait. We have to get on. And they have said they have now made very close, very strong arrangements for a no-deal outcome, and they are prepared for this. It's not exactly optimistic or good to hear. But there was a huge rally last weekend as well. And then after that, there was over a million people. That's right. And that fed into the conversations at the European Union that are still going on within the European Parliament. Mm. And Donald Tusk pointed out that parliamentarians and other EU leaders have a a moral responsibility to the one million people that uh, marched in London calling for Brexit to be abandoned and the six million people that voted or that, that put their names against the petition yeah. calling for Brexit to be abandoned. Okay. But Theresa May went on the TV. <laughs> yeah, there was, it was very strange. She went on television to appeal directly to individuals, the voters, to say the MPs have let her down and mm. the MPs are to blame for all this. Now, if you bear in mind, Joe Cox, a Labour Party MP, was murdered during the Brexit referendum. Mm. You now had Anna Subri, uh, who was a Conservative MP, who's now become uh, a member of the independent group, uh, the Tiggers, as they're called. Uh, she has been told by the police that um, she should not go home because people who have threatened violence against her and her partner have told her they know where she lives and they've put letters through her letterbox warning her that she is at risk of being killed. I mean, we, you know, this is serious stuff. You mm. know, we, we don't need to exaggerate the fact that individual MPs are under threat of their lives. And in this context, Theresa May has gone on television to tell people this is all the MPs' fault. Leo Varadkar, uh, Taoiseach, has talked about something really close to here. So he's yeah, already right. talked about the border. That's right. I mean, because we are now moving towards this, you know, the European Commission has said, basically, we have to now assume that the most likely outcome is a no-deal exit. Mm. I mean, personally, I don't emotionally feel that yet. I still feel that probably the, the withdrawal agreement will somehow get through the House of Commons. But, I mean, the, the European Commission has said we should assume at this point that there will be a no-deal outcome. And Leo Varadkar has come out and said, look, you know, I know I said that whatever happens, there won't be a border, but actually... You know, we have got problems here because there is potentially a different regulatory and tariff system on the two sides of the border. Mm -hmm. And that means there would have to be a border. Now, again, you go back to the problem. 
the border could be in the Irish Sea rather than a land border within Ireland. But then you've got all these other issues about the difference arrangements, trading relationships between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So we still don't know how that is going to play out. And there's also a possibility that, I mean, and this is what sort of Leo Varecco is saying, that for the time being, there won't be a regulatory difference. Hmm. So on the basis that in the short term, there won't be a regulatory difference, perhaps they don't have to do the border. But we have had the publication of the tariff system that would apply if there's a no-deal outcome. And that tariff system is very painful for a lot of businesses. And if there are going to be tariffs for border crossings, then actually, you know, we've got uh, issues around uh, what's going to happen with the border. But there's been other scary further warnings from the ESRA and others about job impact and the financial penalties that we can nearly expect as a result of Brexit. That's right, yeah. I mean, um, Esri, the, the, the highly respected economic analysis body of Ireland, has, has warned that potentially with a no-deal outcome there could be 80,000 job losses Huge. just in the Republic. Yeah. I, I think you have to assume uh, per capita the, the impact would be greater in Northern Ireland than it would be in the Republic. I mean, there's been an international study looking at where the, the, the biggest pain from a no-deal outcome will be from Brexit. The most pain is felt within the United Kingdom. And I think you have to assume that Northern Ireland plus the northeast of England are the two regions that are going to be most affected. Northern Ireland because of its geographical position and the mm. level of trade and the northeast of England because of its uh, dependence on the car industry and Japanese businesses that will likely move. Uh, the second most impacted hurt area would be the Republic of Ireland and the third would be France because, again, you've got the geographic. Yeah. Exactly. And in addition to which, we've also had a report from the accountancy firm EY that is saying that one trillion pounds of money is moving from the UK to parts of the European Union, including uh, Dublin, of course, Mm. uh, with the financial services industry moving a lot of its assets offshore. That doesn't necessarily equate to to massive jobs. Mm. It's money under... uh, under management, there will be significant tax implications for the UK government. And that doesn't matter whether there's no deal or a deal. One trillion pounds is moving. And uh, as we discussed in the last podcast, mm. um, Bank of America says that it has spent $400 million moving its financial management control base from London to Dublin. Polls are saying that optimism about Brexit is even less than it, it was in the past. That's right. Yeah, we've had, uh, and you know, this isn't really just an opinion poll. It's a major uh, academic survey. It's a, a, a serious piece of work, and that found that even with Leave voters, there's uh, most people do not expect a positive outcome from Brexit, and of course, the you know, Remainers uh, have got a higher level of negative uh-huh. uh, expectations. In addition to which, eighty percent of Leave voters and eighty percent of Remain voters believe the UK government has done a bad job in negotiating. That has reflected in a a bit of a shift in terms of overall uh, opinions about whether we should be leaving the European Union or staying within the European Union. Um, It's moved towards 45% support for leave, 55% support for remain. Um, That, to a small extent, reflects the fact that some people have changed their minds. What it reflects more than anything is the number of younger people who are now of voting age who, if they were able to vote, would vote Remain. Remain. So what next, Paul? Return of the withdrawal agreement, resignation of Theresa May. When might the UK UK actually leave the EU? Come on, where's your your crystal ball? Well, we we have to assume at this moment in time that the UK leaves the European Union on the 12th of April without a deal. Mm. Um, as, As I say... It it still emotionally feels to me that that's not the most likely outcome. I still have this gut feeling, as I've saying a lot, that Theresa May's withdrawal agreement will get through. I just don't quite understand how. We are still locked into crisis. And it is worth saying again and again and again that this is the easy bit. The really difficult bit is what comes after the withdrawal agreement, yeah. which is to negotiate the future trading relationship. And, of course, as Leo Varek has said, you know, even with no deal, 
there still has to be the trade negotiations. But, you know, there is no consensus, not just within the House of Commons, there's no consensus across the country mm. about what type of relationship we should have with the European Union. You know, the country, as well as the House of Commons, is, is fundamentally divided over whether we should see ourselves as a European nation with close relationships with our neighbours or whether we should pivot towards the, the, the world economy, a closer relationship with the United States and China, mm. and whether actually we should move to a, a less regulated trading society. Uh, so there are those political arguments that will continue. Uh, and I think, you know, we've seen the Conservative Party is fundamentally split in three ways. The Labour Party is fundamentally split in probably a lot more than three ways. Mm. And I think the party political system will not recover from this uh, for the foreseeable future. So, so you know, it's not simply that we are divided over Brexit, we're divided over the future, and I think we've got a political crisis that will continue for a long period of time. And it's worth, you know, mentioning, I mean, and this is unprecedented as well, there was a joint statement by the CBI and the TUC, the two opposing forces of yeah. the economy, and they point out a joint statement saying this is a national emergency, which mm. it is. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Highwell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page. Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. You spoke with Ivor Ferguson then from the Ulster Farmers Union on the potential impact on the farming community, of, especially in light of the UK tariffs argument being released. That's right. Um, we now know the potential pain of tariffs. It's a, it's a long, complicated document. Mm. Um, but what we can say in, in simple terms is that the agricultural sector is terrified of what no deal means in terms yeah. of the tariffs. It's also going to be substantial the, the substantial disturbance to cross-border trade, which we don't understand how that will fade out. And, and Ivan Ferguson, very blunt, very clear, he wants a deal. As you know, as a farmers' union, we took a position some time ago at the end of October to support the Prime Minister's deal. Mm. And um, we knew that... Um, it wouldn't suit everybody, mm. and we knew that there were a few things about the Prime Minister's deal that uh, we weren't all that happy about, but at the end of a long day, you know, uh, the Prime Minister's deal ticked a lot of boxes for us, mm. and the other thing we knew was that a no deal would be an absolute disaster for us, so it was no surprise that our farmers voted that way, because there's only the two deals on the table, yes. Prime Minister's deal or no deal, yes. and even at this 11th hour, we're still in the same situation. It's still only the Prime Minister's deal or no deal, you know. And if it is no deal, and if we can't get a resolution, which still seems difficult in terms of the House of Commons, yeah. I mean, how damaging is it to your members? Well, it would be um, totally devastating to our members. Um, and, you know, the, sums, the only thing I would say is that some sectors would be affected uh, Worse than others. And which ones would be affected worse? Well, well I suppose the worst ones initially would be sheep farmers. Yeah. And secondly, dairy farmers. Yeah. Uh, because in Northern Ireland here, uh, we're inextricably linked with the Republic of Ireland. 50% um, of our lambs go south for processing, which is over 400,000 lambs a year, which is a sizable figure. And um, when it comes to um, these tariff situation we talked about, we would face uh, sizable tariffs, steep tariffs going south, which would be in the region in sterling terms 35 to 40 pounds per lamb going south. And uh, so that amount of money, that just wouldn't be in the lamb business. So it, you know, it would mean that uh, our lambs couldn't go there. So it would be such a glut of lambs. And uh, the other way then, the, the, the everything from the south can flow into the north, a zero tariff. So, I mean, it would just be a fiasco. The other one is the milk I mentioned, the milk. There's a lot of milk uh, goes south every day for further processing and uh, that would be facing a tariff of somewhere between 17 and 19 pence a litre. And just like the lambs, you know, that sort of money's not in the job, so it couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And, and what does that mean to cross-border processing? Because the dairy industry in Ireland is very much cross-border. 
Well, yes, it is. And um, some of the processors have got their foot in the Northern Ireland market here at the moment. And in theory, they probably could process more milk in Northern Ireland. But you just can't do that overnight. Yes. So a dairy farmer's milk collected every morning, you know, so you, even a week's delay, you know, it, it wouldn't work. You know, mm. the milk has to has to be lifted every day. So that's a concern for farmers, you know. I mean, how would the cross-border dairy industry work? Well, it wouldn't work. Um, and it's not the border situation. You know, a lot of uh, people say to me, you know, like talk about the infrastructure and the border and customs posts and all. You know, that's not a concern of ours. Our concern is the, is the tariffs, yeah. you know, because I'm sure through time they'll be able to, with modern electronics, and computerized systems that might be able to do put some sort of infrastructure in the border. But that's not a concern for us as farmers. Our concern is the tariffs, yes. because we wouldn't need a border. If our lambs wouldn't, my lambs would never go near the border if, if it was a tariff of 35 to 40 pounds. Yeah, I mean, because the issue is the border in the sense that if there's tariffs on products going over the border, yeah. then it makes it uneconomic for a, a large amount of yeah. Well, it would fifty uh, percent of our output, which is quite a lot. It's over four hundred thousand lambs a year. There will be no market for them. You know, that's the bottom line. And <coughs> how damaging would it be to beef and poultry and to cereals? Well, in a no-deal situation, um, it, as I said, it would affect uh, all products uh, everything would produce. But there are lots of other things that. Um, most people hadn't thought about or a lot of people hadn't thought about and in fairness we have to say here too that in Westminster the DEFRA the DEFRA people who uh, are looking at all sorts of scenarios they've only started to look at it relatively recently and there are now sorts of all sorts of uh, queries cropping up that nobody thought of before for example in the poultry business that you mentioned um, there's a lot of our poultry manure goes south onto arable farms uh, for ploughing down for arable crops we are now told that that poultry manure wouldn't be able to go over the border. You know, there's all sorts of health certificate issues, things that were never thought about before. So if we couldn't get rid of poultry manure in Northern Ireland, I mean, that would, you know, we couldn't operate, you know. So there are lots of other issues uh, apart from the, 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 uh, the, pro the product itself. And also the, the marketing structures would, could be completely uh, upset because in place of selling to the Republic, then you'd have to be selling to GB, assuming that you could actually uh, yeah. have a market there. Well, the, you and you know, can't just recreate uh, you know, systems in terms of markets overnight, can you? Yeah. Well, the, the tariff, um, if we look at the tariff uh, structure overall, um, that presents a... Massive problems for us because the tariffs that are in place into the GB market uh, that aren't uh, zero tariffs, but the tariffs there they're quite a bit lower than the tariffs that uh, that we currently have in the EU. So when they are lower, that automatically ma makes the GB market a more attractive place for lots of other uh, countries outside the EU, like America or Brazil or Australia or wherever. It makes it a more competitive place. So. That's our market at the moment, and if we had a face uh, product coming from areas, I mean, even they did meet the standards, and that's a concern for us as well, but if somebody in Brazil decided to meet the beef standards, um, they were, all they'd have to do is to take the hormones out of the cattle, and they would have to come up with a welfare plan that would uh, stand a bit of scrutiny. Um, but if they decided that it was a good enough market, um, and the, the tariffs were half the tariffs at the moment, we could not compete because um, they would have um, input costs such as feed, soybean and maize, which would be about two-thirds the price of ours. They would have a different climate structure and they would have a labour cost of an awful lot less than ours. So we and they've got economies of scale that you can't meet because their farms yeah. are much, much larger than those in Northern Ireland. Yes, and the, the economies of scale certainly is very important. Uh, whether that would match, whether beef in a in a, a feedlot of a hundred thousand cattle would would come up with a welfare plan to suit us, I'm not so sure on that one. But but it is an important consideration, you know. But and we as farmers here, and when it comes to the standards in Northern Ireland, I mean, we have um, uh, been over the striving over this last forty five years to reach the highest standard that we have. Uh, and as both environmental and welfare standards, and um, and the retailers in fairness are supporting our red tractor quality product, 
uh, and I suppose more importantly, the consumers are supporting us. You know, so um, it would be a very big backward step for us as farmers to have to go back and, and, and farm in a different way. And I don't think anybody wants to do that. And a lot of farmers are just likely to say we can't continue in business. Well, that's true. At the end of the day, you know, it's uh, it comes certainly comes down to economics, and um, we have a particular issue in Northern Ireland here. Um, we have um, small farms, uh, although they're very efficient, and um, it's uh, we, uh, we produce a very high quality product. We're, as I've said, we've spent a long number of years getting there, uh, but the farms are small, and you know. We don't have the economy of scale, and uh, so any drop in prices would be a serious problem to us. I think there's another point as well about the zero tariffs. It it has the potential to uh, build a bit of an illegal trade in, in meat here, and you know that would be very risky for the integrity of our business. I mean, product can come from anywhere now. Um, into Southern Ireland if it's on transit to the UK uh, because if it comes into um, a bonded store from, I don't know, anywhere in the world, if it wasn't up to our standard, it could come in. And because it's in transit to the UK, there's nobody in Southern Ireland going to check that because it's in transit, it's not going to end up in the South, so they have no reason to question or look at it. So if there's no uh, checks in the border from Northern Ireland, so that can flow out into Northern Ireland or into Scotland or England or Wales or go anywhere. And after that, there's no trace on it. So it's a system which would cause us you know, no end of problems. Like. And have you got estimates about how many farms would be out of business as a result of the tariff structure? Uh, well, no. Um, um, we, we are still are quite optimistic that we'll not be going there, but the only thing we do know, and uh, we would have figures from milk going south of the border, and we know that 428,000 lambs went south of the border last year, which is roughly 50% of our uh, output. So if there was no market for 50% of our output, I mean, if there's only 10% difference, it makes a difference in the marketplace, but 50% of our output, it, it just wouldn't work like and are you working together with the ore equivalents in the in the south on the other side of the border because they are obviously also potentially damaged by well, well yes and i suppose um, the first thing i would say on that is i work very closely with all the unions england scotland wales and um we we all took the same position to support the prime minister's deal and the same position as regards a no deal that would be a disaster for us so the four unions uh, speak with the one voice on that and we do work very closely with IFA in in uh, in the south, and um, you know, we, we the IFA export fifty percent of their beef into the UK market into our market, and um, you know, we um, although we would like to see more of our beef there, at least the Southern Irish beef the same same costs as ours, and you know, so as uh, a level playing field as regards that and competition, but if if um, if there were South American beef came in so to displace some of that in the UK market, that would you know it would just bring the overall price of beef down, and we are a small island, you know, and if beef fell you know an extra ten or twenty percent on Southern Ireland, it'd very quickly fall here in Northern Ireland as well. So overall, it would be a disaster for us, a no deal. The Highwell Podcast breaks at focus. Funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on soundcloud.com, Apple Podcasts and stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. You spoke also over the last couple of weeks to Professor Siobhan O'Neill from also University on the impact of Brexit on people's mental health. Yeah, um... One of the things, whether we're talking about this you know, directly as an impact of Brexit or not, what we do need to recognise is that community tensions have worsened as a result of Brexit. Yeah. You know, the, the different communities, there is a sense within nationalists and republicans to vote, you know, to blame unionists for what's happened. And there's a sense within the unionist community to blame nationalists and republicans for, as they see it, hyping up issues which weren't really necessarily such big a deal. Mm. So within those community tensions, clearly that creates certain issues. And as Siobhan explains, also there's other issues around, for example, academic research into mental health, which risks losing a lot of its funding.
We need to be very measured and considered when we talk about this because one of the potential impacts of Brexit and mental health is not the actual Brexit itself but all the talk about what Brexit might be and the uncertainty around Brexit. And that can create anxiety for people. So I would be very cautious when we're making links between the likely um, impact of Brexit and mental health um, for that reason too. Um, And certainly that's one of the ways in which Brexit has already affected the mental health of people. It's creating anxiety among people um, and uncertainty and that's not helpful. Um, It's important also to say that mental health problems usually originate in childhood experiences, childhood adversities. Um, And for adults, Brexit probably won't change that too much. Uh, The difficulty is that the things that Brexit leads to can obviously exacerbate current mental health problems. So we have people who are already suffering from depression or anxiety. Brexit is one more thing for them to worry about. Um, and that uncertainty can contribute to their mental illnesses in that way. Um, But thinking about the causes of mental illness, if Brexit leads to a period of austerity measure, we know that austerity and poverty is a stressor on a family um, that can increase the risk of mental illnesses. And there's all sorts of other things that would impact on that. But certainly, um, poverty does have a massive impact on mental health. And when we think about suicide as well as, as an outcome, it becomes even more important because suicide results from a behaviour and we know that the factors that lead to suicidal behaviour are not only mental illnesses but life events. And Brexit can certainly increase the likelihood of several life events that could have people who are already suffering from mental illnesses into suicidal behaviour. So, for example, debt, financial uncertainty, the, the, um, the breakdown of a marriage or a business, any sort of loss that a person experiences Um, and any sort of added pressure and demands on that person can make the difference there between um, someone who's feeling depressed and and lacks hope for the future and and tip them into suicidal thoughts and behaviours. And There was a very interesting study done after the Irish recession um, that that demonstrated that the impact of austerity led to an extra 500 deaths. So we, we must acknowledge that that could be an outcome here depending on how Brexit's managed of course Um, so so that's a very real factor and then the other thing that has been characteristic of the uncertainty around Brexit is the idea that it could stir up sectarian tensions and potentially violence there so we know there's a very real increase in conversations around Irish unity for example and people who have trauma related mental illnesses um, that that come from the troubles or what happened to them and their families during the troubles these sort of conversations can nearly trigger those old wounds for example um, people people's memories of what happened can be reignited there um, particularly in older generations where denial and silence was a feature of how we coped and that actually seemed to work quite well for a lot of people but um, the resurgence and the talk of violence um, and with the potential the very real potential for violence we've seen it in their own city those sorts of things can then lead to people with trauma related mental illnesses re-experiencing or going into um, uh, having, having thoughts and ruminations around the troubles which is not very helpful um, and then I suppose finally if there's actual violence and people witness that and are exposed to that we know that mental illness does stem from trauma exposure so there's that risk as well and we also know that there are already increased community tensions and uh, going backwards in some of the community relationships in Northern Ireland as a result of Brexit because of the sense in which one community blames another for what's happened. So that clearly plays into things as well. Absolutely. Um, anything that increases sectarianism or increases the polarisation between two communities in Northern Ireland takes us further away from peace, which is incredibly precious and incredibly important for mental well-being and for uh, having a society that flourishes in every sense. Now, as an academic, I believe you're also concerned about what Brexit means for the financing of research into mental health Well, this is really, really important. Um, We don't have 
the, the right treatments for mental illnesses yet. We know that even when someone gets an antidepressant, um, only a certain proportion of those people have, will, will see benefit of that. And people need to try different types of therapies and different types of medications before they'll get something that's effective. So the science and mental health treatments is actually at an earlier stage than it would be for physical illnesses, for many physical illnesses. So we need much more research in mental health and we need much more research in mental health in societies such as Northern Ireland who have come out of a period of conflict and violence. Now, the difficulty with Brexit is that, that it's shutting off those sources of income, that it's potentially limiting the extent to which we can collaborate with experts from Europe and from other places to develop our research here. So there's a massive impact there and, and already we're seeing in those European research funding programs we, we're, um, we're experiencing uncertainty about whether they'll be continued after Brexit, about whether collaborators will want to work with us in the future. So that that's a concern for academia but it's a very specific concern for us as mental health researchers about where this is all going to go and what it's gonna ha- what's going to happen to our discipline, for example. And this may be a stretch too far, but I do wonder whether the the sense that Brexit will limit younger people's uh, ability to do things in other places, to travel freely across the European Union, to study and elsewhere, whether that actually holds back opportunities for people to explore more things and actually experience good mental health from those experiences. Yes, we know that when, when people travel, it broadens their mind, it opens them up to new experiences, it increases what we would call cognitive flexibility, flexible thinking, and these are all the things that promote mental well-being and resilience. So when a person is in a time of stress or pressure or when something happens in their own lives, they have more resources upon which to draw to to strengthen them and to get them through that because they've experienced other people, other places, how things are done elsewhere. It's really, really important to broadening minds. It's important that young people who do go away and have those experiences come back. And the very real risk is that the brain drain that we've experienced throughout the Troubles is going to be exacerbated again by Brexit, where people are going to, young people are wanting to leave and not, they're less likely to come back because they'll see Northern Ireland as a very insular place. So I think that's very dangerous. It's difficult to, to put um, to quantify the effect of that, I guess. But I think it's a very, very real risk. And the surveys of young people, um, you know, they're, they're telling us, young people are telling us that they want to go and that, that they don't think they're coming back. And this is so terrible because in, certainly in the northwest we have some of the highest performing schools. Our young people are really bright and we provide them with an excellent education in the province here. So I think it would be a great detriment um, to those young people and to the province as a whole if, if we have this hard Brexit and that's the result. However, I think it's important not to speculate too much. Paul, you know, and the, the conversations we're having are all the what-ifs. Um, We need to put these ideas out there, but we need people to respond to them and make sure that Brexit is managed in such a way, if it has to happen at all, that it's managed in such a way that we can ameliorate some of these impacts. And what resources are out there for people who do feel stressed by Brexit? Um, The usual resources are available. Um, So there's crisis lines for people who find that they're getting anxious and overwhelmed. There's Samaritans are there 24 hours a day to talk about absolutely anything. People feeling a bit lonely, a bit uncertain about what's ahead, then they they will take those calls. Lifeline also, their volunteers and and their counsellors are available and they provide face-to-face counselling as well for people who are feeling suicidal or, or lacking hope. For the future, there's also a whole range of other community services and services in the community and voluntary sector for people to help with stress. To help, I mean, their stress um, management classes are being held in all of the trust areas for free. We have the recovery colleges as well, and they give people courses and and build their skills in managing their own mental health. So there's an enormous number of resources across Northern Ireland to help people manage stress, anxiety, uncertainty, and then if they're in a suicidal crisis, there's help there as well. Thanks to Siobhan for taking the time there to meet with us and really interesting conversation. Um, Our final interview is uh, a quick conversation with Paul Stafford from Ulster University. And Paul's leading a piece of research on the community relations impact, as you mentioned earlier, on Brexit. It's a bit of a longitudinal study. It's a two-phase. He's asking people to take part in a survey now. That's right. He wants, Ulster University wants to study what the community impacts are. Mm. And Paul talked to us about it. 
My study is, um, like I'm looking from a social psychologist's perspective, so I'm looking at people's perceptions of what's going on within Brexit at the moment, how they feel that's impacting on community relations at the moment in Northern Ireland and between Northern Ireland, as you said, and both Britain and the Republic. What we'll be doing is asking people these questions at this point in time when there is a lot that's undecided about Brexit and then we'll be asking for people's email addresses within the survey so that we can later approach them again in order to find out their feelings when things have become more resolved. And you're looking for people listening to this to be involved in it? We very much are, like we're sort of treating this as an opportunity for people to have their voices heard who wouldn't necessarily get the opportunity to. So yeah, we're sort of very much wanting to get as wide a demographic and a representation of the population of Northern Ireland as we can. Including, for example, those 18, 19-year-olds who probably have a very strong view but weren't able to participate in the referendum. That's the thing. There are so many people that had no opportunity to give their views on the referendum, which was nearly three years ago now. And it would be great to have their voices heard at this stage. And is there a particular interest in Derry, Foyle, the, the, the border area? geographical position where it's of particular note like there are people who might have to travel across the border sort of just three times because of the nature of it in order to get into work so I think sort of very much at the forefront of people's minds at the moment because of the interaction that they have between sort of the Republic and Northern Ireland. When will the study results be published and how will they affect things? Hopefully we'll be able to publish some of the results following the first stage of data collection so We will be working on those probably within the next two months is when we'll sort of close the first round of data collection and then it'll take some analysis before things are sort of reviewed and published. When it comes to the second round of data collection, we'll be waiting until things have become more decided within Brexit and whatever plan ends up occurring is is being implemented. So we'll be asking people the same questions again and that's that it may well be another year before we're able to ask those questions. So we're really looking at this as a sort of thorough and forward-looking forward looking study. Yeah, we hope it'll really contribute to the understanding of what community relations are within Northern Ireland at the moment and how they're being affected by the Brexit process. Now, one of the criticisms of academic studies is often that they're not having an impact in the real world. So is it your hope that this will affect decision-making in Northern Ireland and also the United Kingdom in terms of how decisions are taken and how relationships are conducted between communities? Yeah, really important for this research to have an impact when it comes to policy-making. Because we're looking at what has happened over the period of two years, or one or two years probably. It can't happen in real time, if that makes sense. We have to understand what's happened. So we're hoping that once it's published, it will affect sort of forward-making policy decisions, yeah. Perhaps give listeners a sense of the type of questions that you're asking. The survey starts by asking a few um, demographic questions, so it'll ask things we need to know, people's ages and genders, if they're... Like, everything, it's up to the person that's responding as to what questions that they actually want to answer. So everything is um, is sort of voluntarily given. But then we will ask about their views on Brexit, what they feel, how the situation is impacting upon community relations, and also their views on like political activism and political violence. It covers quite a sort of broad range of topics that we feel are key to the sort of how Brexit might be affecting Northern Ireland at the moment. Now, of course, all this information is provided on a confidential basis. Can you give an assurance on that? We can. So everything has been approved by us University's Ethical Filter Committee. So any of the information that is specific to you, so like we have to take an email address so that we can get back in touch later, that's done on a separate form to the study itself. And there is just a, a code that's used so that we can identify which person from the first form is answering the questions on the second, so that it's possible to get... We know how people's views have changed over time, but that information is sort of carefully stored and stored separately. There's no way that people will be able to externally trace any of the answers that have been given.
and stored in ways that are not susceptible to the data hacking. It's all stored according to the ethical guidelines, yes. And how can people engage with this? What's the web address? If people want to email me, then they'll be able, I'll be able to send the link across. So my email address is stafford-p1 at ulster.ac.uk. Alternatively, you can find it on my Twitter, which is paul underscore stafford underscore. And the Hollywell Trust have kindly offered to share that link as well. Thank you to Paul. Um, you can find a link to that survey if you want to take part in it and the, the notes for this episode as well. And we hope that as many people as possible could take part in that. I think the more they take part, the better. It's on the excellent Hollywood Trust revamped website. Ah, oh, there you go. Right, we're, we're, we're looking well. That's all we have to say. Finally, it only took us two years to get here. Paul, we mentioned at the top of the show there that we have a Brexit question as well. And the Brexit question this month is about the rights of people to reside in the UK after Brexit. Yes, people are worried. And mm. that is understandable. Um, the situation is not simple. And the reality is that if you are from a European Union state, what we call the EU26, that's not mm -hmm. the Republic of Ireland and not the UK, then you won't necessarily have a continuing right to live within the EU. So you have to apply for it. So let's just go through this in a bit of detail, and it will take a couple of minutes, yeah, also, sure. Gerard. So the uh, what's called the settlement scheme, because it's about settled status and pre-settled status, and these terms are a bit uncomfortable, perhaps. And, uh, but the, the settlement scheme will be available for applications from the 30th of March. So in other words, that's the end of this week, this weekend. Yeah. And you'll be able to apply, and it is friendly for smartphones. So the assumption is that uh, people will be able to apply on smartphones. You've got a reasonable length of time to apply. You've got until the 30th of June 2021. Now, the rules are, assuming that the UK leaves the EU without a deal, that you need to be living in the UK by the 12th of April of this year. Okay, The deadline for applying will be the 31st of December next year. And the people who apply are people who are citizens of one of the EU26. Mm -hmm. Stress again, EU countries, not the UK, not the Republic of Ireland. They don't need to apply. Or else a member of the European Economic Area, which is countries like Norway uh, or even Switzerland. So people who are living here from one of those countries, and there are people in the Northwest. It's worth stressing this. There's yeah. a significant number of people this does affect. They don't need to apply, as I say, if they're a British or Irish citizen, um, but if you were born in the UK and not a British citizen, then you do need to apply. And if you have a permanent residence document, you will need to apply. Uh, and if you are a family member of someone who's an EU citizen um, who does not need to apply, then actually you still need to apply. OK, right. so settled status. You usually will get settled status if you started living in the UK by the 31st of December 2020, or if we leave without a deal, by 9, uh, the 12th of April 2019. So in other words, if we assume that the UK is leaving the EU without a deal, you're likely to get it if you are living in the UK by the 12th of April 2019. That's a few, any, you know, a couple, couple of weeks, weeks. ago. Yeah. That's right. And if you've lived in the UK for a continuous five-year period, that five years continuous residence means five years in a row that you've been in the UK for at least six months in any 12-month period. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you do not have five years continuous residence when you apply, then you are likely to be given pre-settled status. And after a long period, after five years, then you can apply that you're given settled status. Um, with settled or pre-settled status, it gives you the right to work in the UK. It gives you the right to use the NHS, to study at school or college, and to access public funds, including benefits and pensions, if you are eligible for them. Mm -hmm. It also allows you to travel in and out of the UK. Now, you will need to prove that you have continuously resided in the UK. Uh, you will need to provide that proof. Uh, typically, your national insurance records and your national insurance number will be sufficient to do that. Okay. Um, now, it's also worth mentioning that if you have a criminal conviction, then that actually could 
jeopardise your right to remain. Mm. So if you're 18 or over, the Home Office will check whether you've committed a serious or reported crime. And if you are regarded as, uh, as presenting a security threat, then you won't be given settled status. You won't be allowed to stay. Mm. Uh, you will be asked about your criminal history. Um, it's unclear exactly what will constitute a major or a minor crime. And it may be that what you think of as a minor crime might be regarded by the Home Office as a major crime. And on that basis, you might not be allowed to stay. So mm. there the will be these things will be decided on a case by case basis. So what I would say is good luck, really. Um, it's yeah. not uh, not something that um, that people are going to be very happy about dealing with. Um, but it's also worth adding that uh, you can apply for your child, and it's an interesting definition of a child, which is anyone under 21. So it's not 18 or 16, it's a mm. definition of 21. And your child can either apply themselves or you can apply on their behalf. Uh, and the rules in terms of qualification are the same. Okay. If you're an Irish citizen, you do not need to apply for settled or pre-settled status. And actually, that could, if you did apply... Uh, I'm advised that could affect some of your other rights. So that um, you, if you are in doubt, take advice from uh, a, a rights organisation mm-hmm. or else a human rights lawyer. And I think actually quite a lot of people might want to do that. It's also worth adding on a completely different subject that pets are also affected. Now, whenever I go to Lisbon and Beach on a Sunday morning, I see lots of people I know from Derry running their dogs. Well, no. in future... If we get a no-deal outcome, you will have difficulty doing that. You have to be able to prove that you've got a pet passport and that they are vaccinated. And if the vaccination's out of date, then you won't be allowed. And I'm told, or at least regulations say, these things will be checked at the border. Okay. So they could left the dog out for you and you're only going to turn you around. Yeah, Yeah. turn you around. So, I mean, we'll see whether there really is a border. We'll see really whether which which roads are actually controlled, etc., assuming that the border does happen, assuming that there's a no-deal outcome. So Uh many assumptions and so little knowledge. But it it seems that the the settled status conversation that you just had there, the question, it seems to be that the practical rollout of what was promised during the Brexit campaign by the, the leavers, this seems to be, here's what it looks like. It's like we said, we'll control our borders. This is what it is. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things which occur to me there, Gerard, which is that um, I've never, never, never understood how you could say as a leave campaigner that we wanted to control our borders and then say afterwards, actually, it doesn't mean there's a border in Ireland one way or the other. I mean, you know, yeah. it just seems to me to be incompatible to say that we want to control our borders and we don't then have either a border within Ireland or with the Irish Sea or else, as some Brexit campaigners want, Ireland leaves the European Union. But there's no, yeah. no it's obvious... It's on the horizon. You are, there's no obvious appetite within Ireland to leave the European Union, no. that's for certain. And actually, as things are... The mainland European economy is more important to Ireland than the UK economy is. So I don't see that as happening. But yeah, and and I think one of the things that has probably been underestimated is just how many families living within the UK, including within Northern Ireland, including within the northwest of Ireland, Mm. are actually having unconventional family relationships which involve people from uh, from within the EU 26 and it also it mm. also affects people from outside of the EU whose own status and permission to stay within the UK might be affected by what's happening. That's the end of the podcast for this month. I have to thank uh, Paul as usual um, for his work this month diligent as always, really informative as always thank you Paul but I think we have to do a wee bit more than that. This is our last officially funded podcast uh, through the Brexit Dialogue Fund of the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland uh, for to whom we are eternally grateful for the support. We quite foolishly at the outset of this project uh, listened to the politicians and thought that Brexit would kick on for the 29th of March. Turns out that may not be the case. Um, what we can promise is that we are going to continue, at least in the short term. We'll definitely be back next month. It still remains to be a crucial issue, a crucial issue that we think that people need to hear about. And you definitely will hear back from us. But thanks to everybody that took part this month. And we'll be back and touch again next month. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.